What is up? And welcome to Off the Books, where we're surfing the uncharted waters of accounting, finance, and wherever else the waves take us. I'm Drew Dubner, and I'm your humble host. I'm not an accountant, but I like asking questions of people who are, so finance professionals can do their jobs better. Today, we have Steve Soder, Camille Rudy, and the inimitable Heather Markheim. Steve, would you introduce yourself to the audience? Certainly. Glad to be here. My name is Steve Soder, accounting enthusiast and Diet Coke aficionado. Looking forward to debiting some good conversation today on this topic. Hey, Steve, it's Camille. Great to see you today. I'm the SEC Professionals Group National Director, and I'm super excited to talk about Cecil. And Heather, it's your first time on the show. Yes, thank you. I'm a 17-year financial services veteran, I'm continually intrigued by how companies are approaching and adapting to the regulatory environment. So happy to be here today. Sweet. So uh, yeah, as, as we all mentioned, the topic today is the, the delay of Cecil for large banks due to the CARES Act. I'm familiar with the CARES Act. It's the, the big bailout that we're all supposed to get. It's the checks that's supposedly coming in the mail sometime soon. But I'm admittedly a little unfamiliar with Cecil. So Heather, this is your area of expertise and this is your place to shine. Could you, could you fill me in on uh, you know, what this is and why it's a big deal? Sure. So Cecil has actually been a topic out in the industry for going on about four years now. Um, and just for those that aren't familiar, Cecil stands for Current Expected Credit Losses. And it was first rolled out in 2016 as a new accounting standard to replace what many will know as AL, Allowance for Loan and Lease Losses. And it really is a um, pivotal shift in how organizations will have to account for their credit losses. To put it very simply, Cecil replaces AL by putting more of a focus on how organizations, large banks, insurance companies will have to estimate their credit losses versus looking at historical at historical credit losses to date. So is that just for banks and insurance agencies, if I've got that right? So primarily, so it actually um, focuses on financial statements or companies, I'm sorry, that have financial statements compliant with GAAP. And you focus on those that hold loans or other debit debt securities on its balance sheet. And you can include things like mortgage, um, REITs, private equity, hedge funds, um, and really any other kind of specialty finance company in the lending business. So it is a broad stroke. Again, how, how does this sort of thing get implemented? What So it, it passes into existence and where does the rubber meet the road? So one of the things that these organizations have had to look at over the last few years with the move from AL to CECL is not just understanding how to actually account for this on their financial statements, but how they were going to actually execute um, on the, the numbers that were coming to them. So this has had, over the last few years, um, major operational impacts that these organizations have been planning for and executing on as the implementation timeline has um, really come even to today. I mean, some organizations are technically under implementation guidelines um, in 2020 and some extend to 2023. So they've had to look not just at their data architecture, but also how they approach their modeling and ultimately account on their financial statements. 
And what will also happen is how they'll have to, as results come in, look at how they actually price their products in the market. So, Heather, if I understand it, and I'm not a financial services expert per se, but it seems like under the ALLL, you would have to look at your current losses that you're already experiencing with your, just, just take a single loan. You know, it would be, okay, am I, am I experiencing a loss? Is the, is the borrower late? Are they delinquent or whatever? And then that would be the basis for, you know, the, 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 the impact to my financial statements for those losses. But, but now under Cecil, is it right to say that I'm going to be looking into the future using the best information that I know today and estimate what those losses are going to be as opposed to relying on the current losses that I'm experiencing with that loan? Is that a generalization? Is that accurate though? That's a fa- that's a fair statement. And as you can imagine, obviously with a lot of modeling that's done in these organizations, there is an expectation to have to predict what occurs. Um, and that has actually been one of the concerns with CECL implementation is the macro level forecasting that has to be done by these organizations to properly be able to predict and forecast out. But as you can imagine, it is a huge shift. Um, in looking at data that is is present, has actually hit the books versus assumptions and expectations of future movement. Got it. And and that would explain why, to your comment a moment ago, why even operationally this is having a significant impact. It's not just an accounting exercise that accountants do behind closed doors. Operationally, this is having some significant impacts because Obviously, I need more information in order to do that modeling and that estimating. Is that is that also a, a fair statement? Correct. And that goes to the point of the fact that it isn't even just a modeling exercise. It even goes further up um, into some of the data architecture that these organizations have had to plan for, um, going all the way up to data sourcing, data quality, just being able to actually have the data available, enough vintage data to be able to perform. Um, some of these modeling exercises. So yes, and then it also comes down once you get into the modeling aspect, um, making sure that the models hold, that the assumptions are valid um, as not you just as you just don't execute the first round, but as this is going to move forward into into future analysis. You know, one thing that I think of, Heather, when I when I think about um, you know estimates and models and assumptions, it's just how dangerous that can be. You know, you think about the past, um, some of the fair value models that have been used in other accounting standards and how uh, those assumptions can be um, manipulated both um, intentionally or otherwise. Do you feel like this gets us to a slippery slope where, you know, now we're starting to use estimates as potentially a way to manage earnings, manage expectations. This becomes a little bit of a cookie jar. And I don't want to accuse anybody, but but I wonder if that's a real risk that we ought to be thinking about relative to Cecil. So, you know, it's an interesting point. Of course, we have to be concerned about that. And that's why you don't just build a model and let it run and expect that it's going to be perfect on a go forward basis. This approach I mean, I think everybody in the industry is fully aware that this approach is going to have to be revisited. It'll more than likely have to be adjusted, um, and there'll be be enhancements that are made to it. But one of the reasons that CECL is replacing AL was because of 
the lack of forecasting and expectations that were applied before um, and that were highlighted during the 2008 financial crisis, that you did need to have a way to look forward and not just be looking back when you look at credit losses um, in this way, especially when dealing with your capital reserves. And so, yes, it has to be it's going to have to be overseen. It's going to have to be challenged. Um, and especially as we look at the environment that we're in right now, um, you, you, you don't even know what to expect, right, at this point. And it's going to be a great exercise in understanding how nimble these organizations are going to need to be in both understanding what they're doing, the impacts, and how to adjust accordingly. For sure. Yeah. And it, no one really knows where we're going to be even a few months from now. So it, it's it's hard to make any basis of forecasting. Um, so this, Steve, one thing I want to understand is this intertwines. There's a crux between the CARES Act and CECL. And I'm not quite understanding that. There was a lot of both criticism and concern um, uh, about the implementation of CECL. What's interesting is the way that it kind of got stuffed into the into the CARES Act as a potential way to um, somehow give some relief to banks, give them some relief on having to go through this accounting exercise. But given that banks were required to adopt, you know, large banks anyway, January 1st, 2020, and then this delay got, this option to delay got passed on March 27th, 2020, I mean, the truth is when you're implementing an accounting standard, especially one as big as CARES, excuse me, as CECL appears to be, March 27th doesn't do any good for me. I mean, I've already, I'm way past that. I would have needed to know about this six to eight months ago. And so it really begs the question, who is it that we think we are serving by, you know, creating this delay? And I'm not sure because Heather, I'd be interested in what you've heard, but for those that I've spoken with, Cecil was adopted and not that they've moved on, but it was kind of in the back of you in the rear view mirror a little bit, um, you know, by the time you got to the end of the quarter. Yeah, no, that absolutely, Steve. And that's a great point and, and definitely something that we want to highlight is that for a lot of these large organizations, um, even once the CARE Act was passed, they had not just been planning and had planned to to execute Cecil, which was technically um, supposedly implemented by January 2020, but many had already gone through these very large process exercises of starting to run their models um, and not just to report CECL numbers, but into larger processes like the CCAR process, which we know was just recently submitted at the beginning of April, which will definitely have a highlight and a spotlight on it um, once results are released, um, in particular with this environment. Hey, Camille, are you hearing any, any of this from your members of the SEC professionals group? Absolutely. Um, in recent conversations we've had with our members, several people expressed an interest, and these were not banks. These were manufacturing companies, distributors, uh, large-sized corporations that had nothing to do with banking, and I was quite surprised. In fact, there was now an interest in many of our members in convening a CECL committee to learn more about implementation. So it was curious to me that these non-banks had an interest in this topic. Um, but we did reach out to some of the larger banks and it's exactly what Steve said. They've kind of already down this road. They're way down this road. 
So the, the delay was not something that was terribly well received by them at all. What, what was the last time that we implemented something of this magnitude? Well, there was the RevRec standard. There was the lease accounting standard. Um, Steve, anything else you might add? Those were two of the largest recent changes in standards that had a huge impact on our members. Um, including CECL, three major, major, I would say, transformational accounting standards that have been enacted, uh, revenue recognition being one, leases being the other, and, and, and then CECL. And it is interesting to think about the intellectual um, and effort burden that are being placed on financial reporting teams and auditors alike for having to both implement and audit and just work through, as Heather also said, some of the operational impacts. I mean, there's there's some standard setting fatigue, or I should say standard implementing fatigue. And I wonder if that was maybe part of, although too little too late, but maybe part of the, uh, you know, at least the intention of including this as part of the CARES Act. Again, I don't think it had its, um, it achieved its goal. Um, because, and let's keep in mind here, this was only for large, uh, for large, for large banks, um, large corporations who may be impacted by Cecil, insurance companies impacted by Cecil, they did not get the similar option to delay as part of the CARES Act. Um, so yes, I think there's some fatigue. And now a little bit of confusion, I would imagine, as to what the intent was um, you know, by, by putting this in the act. What was the original intent of this? Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> so there is an, and, and Steve, I'd be interested in your thoughts too on this. Um, so there is the actual, we can talk about the mechanical implementation of CECL, right? The running up models, the actual accounting, it hitting the books, it hitting CCAR. But the underline, if you look at it, the original CECL, it had a delay that it had where there was a three-year transition period for um, the recognition of the capital reserves. And so part of what the CARES Act did is it added on an additional two years to that three-year period. So in theory, really, now it's a five-year period um, to really incorporate that full impact on capital reserves for Cecil, which, you know, from what obviously the, the industry has been saying, that the impact on reserves is going to be substantial. So just a general fatigue, back to what you're saying, Steve? There, there's there's the accounting. That's the first part. But then the second is how this gets impacted based on their, um, you know, regulatory capital calculations. So what that means is that, again, if the accounting becomes like like the report or the 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 point in time measurement, well, then there's this regulatory capital calculation that goes that is based on that report. Well, that has also changed. Um, as a result of all this, which, which Heather laid out. So so now the question is, okay, well, not only do I have to deal with this change in accounting standard, but now I also have to deal with this sudden change in my regulatory capital calculation. And part of me wonders, honestly, that could we have not just gone straight to the impact of the regulatory capital and given relief there, rather than introducing this ambiguity into the accounting uh, into the accounting standard? And to me, to me, Drew, this th- th- this just opens up um, Pandora's box and shows you what happens when non-accountants try to get involved in accounting, which Ooh. in this case is Congress. Hot take. Um, 
I think there's a real a real risk there. Well, and I think that the other point too is it's not just about the transparency into a single company's balance sheet. It's also about the consistency across balance sheets in an industry, right? Because what if you have one large organization that opts one way versus another that doesn't? And a lot of times when you're doing peer analysis, right, or that even the the FRB or the OCC is looking and comparing against results, now it's not necessarily apples to apples. It, it's going to have to be unwinding these apples and oranges. Break, break that down for me. Help me understand the apples to oranges. Well, if you've got one organization, right, that is only that is deciding to implement CECL is still going to stay on that three-year transition period versus another uh, similar size organization, but now they are opting to take the additional two years. You're now comparing three versus five years, and it's just not apples to apples, to Steve's point. Um, you, you bring in the ambiguity and the choice. But, but, but here's the question, right, is that part of what this has done is it has, it's brought in the choice. And the choice allows the opportunity to be, to bring, to have ambiguity and results, right? And lack of consistency and transparency. Today's episode of Off the Books is brought to you by Workiba. While we're all hunkering down, we've all picked up new hobbies. Steve's been knitting a bunch. I've been baking. It's Little House on the Prairie, but in 2020. While I was making a recent loaf of bread, it dawned on me how much financial reporting is a little like baking. Simple, precise ingredients really go a long way. With financial reporting, you got your core financial data, your flour, you got a pinch of narrative, some yeast, salt bay, some risk factors in there, and bam, you got a 10K fresh out of the oven. Mess those ingredients up, and you got weird cookies that make your house smell like burnt eggs for a week. Enter Workiva. Workiva helps risk and reporting teams automate the little stuff, the copy and pasting numbers from one table to another, building out charts based on that data, that sort of thing. When you trust the quality of your ingredients, you get a better end product, whether that's sourdough or a tan Q. Check it out. Learn more at workiva.com. Welcome back to Off the Books. Where we left off, Heather was kind of explaining the choice. Heather, do you want to kind of get us back up to speed? Well, yeah. So I think one of the important things as we think about the CARES Act that was passed to round out what Steve had mentioned, that a lot of these organizations had already been down the path. They had already been preparing. Of course, for the large banks, the the smaller and non-public are still along the path of implementation of 2023. But the CARES Act really opened up the door for choice for these companies, both in whether they opted to be able to delay implementation and then how they decided to actually account for it. Um, so we go from something that had been kind of this heavy hand coming down, a, a revolution, if you will, and how they looked at credit losses to now a choice, very different ends of the spectrum. So Heather, I mean, I'm a little confused here. Isn't it a big deal that the US Congress is stepping in on an accounting standard? I mean, has this happened before? What kind of precedent does this set? Yeah, and Steve, maybe I'll defer to you our, on the accounting side, but Camille, yes. So do I believe that it is a big deal that they have stepped in? And not only, it's one thing if they had stepped in and said, okay, we are going to move for everybody that, let's just say, 
June 30th were shifting, but it was the fact that it became a choice. That's what I find to be interesting in this. Are you saying you think they should have regulated it for everybody instead of making it a choice? Isn't a choice a good thing? Not for my kids. Um, but the choice in timing for implementation so that we can have transparency to be able to see across an industry on performance, I think there's a disconnect there. And if you were to take a step back at the 50,000 foot view, I would suspect that the purpose of CECL was to be able to create the kind of uniform transparency that in theory could have involved, could have, excuse me, prevented, you know, the financial crash in That's 2008. The exactly. That's the irony. But, but, but now what we've done is, is sort of walked backwards a little bit, undone some of those benefits that we would have otherwise gotten from Cecil in order to give companies this choice. And the problem is that it was too little too late because for all intents and purposes, the choice had already been made. They had already implemented um, as of the beginning of the year. I mean, if you mean to tell me that as of March 27th, I had not yet implemented a standard for which I needed to begin reporting, you know, four days later on March 31st. I mean, that's absolutely ludicrous. You know, we talked about kind of how this changes, how organizations approach with their architecture, their modeling. And, and like I mentioned earlier, one of the criticisms with Cecil has been really the difficulty in how do you predict at the macro level, right, the economic environment, which COVID is obviously showing us there's always something that's going to come out of left field, with it. So if we also don't think that these organizations are going to go back, whether they did or didn't run Cecil, if they're not going to go back over the next few months and completely reassess now their models to compensate for what's happened in the last six to eight weeks, then we're fooling ourselves. So it's a little bit of a chicken and egg right now. Yeah, but if you don't give people a deadline, I don't. are they ever going to get it done? That's where the inconsistency, right? And also, you're always going to have a reason to move something. Right. The point is to what Steve had mentioned is we go back to why this had been an overhaul from the financial crisis. It was to try to get a standard that compensated for what we had seen occur and try to get a level playing field to be able to see across an industry. And, and I'll come on a little bit stronger um, than Heather. If you think about the change from AFLL to Cecil, what we're saying is that under Cecil, I should be able at a point in time before the crisis hits, I should be able to have some level, not 100%, but some level of, of estimation and accuracy into what a loan portfolio is going to do so that in a perfect world, prior to the financial crash of 2008, I had already had those things baked into my models as opposed to having to get through part of that financial crash and then later updating my models in order to know what the losses are going to be. So you fast forward to today, in theory, right now, before all of the COVID stuff you know, hit the fan in the US, I would have had some basis to have that the, those potential losses included into my you know, estimates prior to it happening where now I'm in a position, if somebody was to delay in theory, they may not be able to include all of those losses until after they had already begun, after they had already occurred, which would seem to exacerbate some of the consequences of a financial crash. Now, Heather, keep me honest. Is that, am, am I making that distinction correctly? 
No, that that's a that's a great way to summarize it. I mean, one of the things that that as we look at predicting and and trying to, I guess, have your crystal ball and see the future is these type of black swan events that occur, right? So these unpredictable events that can absolutely shock an organization like we saw in 2008, which, I mean, could have had even a more dramatic impact if 2008 had never happened on what's happening right now with COVID. Um, So there is actually some irony there as well. Um, But it's also about learning from those events and how to, to your point earlier, right? It's not going to be perfect, but we're going to continue to refine these as we go forward. Was this a black swan event? I know you just threw that term out there. And that implies that there's no way that people could have had this on their radar, but was it? Well, well, I mean, in when you look at modeling and trying to quantify risk, a black swan event is like the holy grail. And And I will also concede, Heather, to your point there that yeah, the likelihood of being able to have predicted, certainly COVID-19, you know, I think would have been uh, next to impossible. The financial crash, I'm not so sure. But again, in a perfect world, you would have models that would be looking forward and forecasting for those types of events rather than looking backward. Correct. And and let's also make make it clear that it's not necessarily about having to predict the specific black swan event. It's just that it can occur. It's just the gun concept the whole concept that it can occur. I mean, again, let's go back and let's think, what if 2008 hadn't happened, right? And the organizations hadn't had the type of capital and liquidity that they have right now. And then all of a sudden something like COVID comes in. Because what would have happened? Could you imagine if 2008 had never happened? Now, maybe something else would have happened. But the reason that the banks could go to Capitol Hill and, and stand with the president and say that we are financially sound and we can back this that was a strong statement yeah, versus really. let's go back 12 years in the past when it was a it was a 180 right and it's because we changed behaviors because we put people on the same playing field and we held them accountable what's what's the incentive for companies to for banks for airlines for whoever to play nice again if they're going to get bailed out the way an a, a company the way a business a bank an insurer the way that they're viewed, their reputation, right? They're, it's a commodity now. And being able to say that we can withstand such events, we have planned, this is the way we manage our business to be able to deal with this. And we're going to be able to get out on the other end of this. That's something strong to be able to say. And it's because we had things like this and because we held people to the similar standard and because we held them accountable. Camille, I feel like I cut you off on something. The accountability and the the comfort that we have knowing that our financial institutions are strong despite the circumstances and despite the environment that we're all facing. I mean, it has we have to find comfort somewhere. So that's that's right. That's what I really resonated with when she was saying that. And what's interesting to me is that if you look at the um, the potential impact of delaying or at least giving the option to delay Cecil uh, for some of these larger banks, you actually end up prolonging the problem because you would lack that transparency um, that Cecil was intended to create. You know, do we have a precedent for Congress getting involved in accounting standards? That kind of involvement is not helpful, particularly by people who don't understand, at least in my view, either the um, 
principles behind these accounting standards and the need for consistency um, among them in order for financial reporting, just basic financial reporting to work. Um, Has it always gone well? No, it's rarely gone well. And again, that just demonstrates what happens when, you know, non-accountants try to um, get involved in matters that, frankly, they're just not qualified to get involved in. Well said. Well said, Steve. Congress should stay out of the business of accounting. Long live accountants. So how do I teach my local congressperson accounting? Do I just like sign them up for uh, like a Linda class on accounting? Well, see, that's that 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 then becomes the problem because They'll know you, enough that they'll think that they can get involved, and they still won't know enough to have a strong opinion. So you should not reckon, you should not send them to Linda for accounting classes. Well, and and what I would say is that there's also a risk in accountants being able to, um, you know, scoff at non-accountants and say, "Well, you just simply don't understand this, so don't get involved." And then the reality is, you know, look at where we were at pre Sarbanes Oxley. And you had an entire firm, you know, Arthur Anderson, that that was basically um, eviscerated um, as a direct consequence of them, you know, sticking up their noses at others saying, hey, you don't know, you don't know as well as we know. Just leave it to us, the experts. We've got it right. What Congress did in the CARES Act was not helpful to the purpose of Cecil or I think to the standard setting process in general. Um, and I think that's the other side of the spectrum where the wheels come off of it and Congress actually um, hurts more than it helps. Imagine that. What a shocker, right? Who'd have thunk? So uh, we'll wrap things up here with the closing question of the day. We've had a little more time on our hands. What music are we listening to? What's everyone been listening to? Heather, I, you're from down south. You've probably got some country twang to you. Yep, gotta stay good old Dixie. So we got country music. Ooh. Steve, you're into like... Scandinavian speed metal, I think. You know what? So I've actually recently uh, started listening to Mexi Pop by the Mariachis. That's an album, not a genre. Fantastic. Tell me more about that. Picture uh, a mariachi band playing uh, modern pop songs, <laughs> and it is pure bliss. I like <laughs> And on a not-so-funny <sighs> note, I will tell you that I was listening to Andrea Bocelli yesterday, when he was singing from the Duomo in Milano, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet this episode of Off the Books. Thanks everyone for your time. Steve, Heather, Camille, look forward to hashing things out with you all again. While you're here, dear listener, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or however you get your podcast delivered to you. I'm your host, Drew Dubner, and I'll catch you on the next wave. Hey, can we talk about Camille's Big Bird sweater? Because at the last ending, we mentioned it, and then she wore it after, like, the episode was recorded. It was great. Thank you, Camille. It's a sweater that has some yellow elements to it, (laughs) and as soon as Steve saw it, he decided it was Big Bird-ish.